Father, as we mark the 15th year or the 15th anniversary of that terrible event we know as 9-11 where we saw those planes going into those towers, Lord, and we saw those, as we watched on TV, those towers collapse with thousands of people in them. We saw the Pentagon hit, Lord. We just saw that terrible, terrible day of terror. Lord, but as we read your word, there's a day coming that, that uh, is magnified thousands of times more than that, Lord. You call it the, your day, the day of the Lord, and what a terrible day it is. But as Peter will tell us today, we're to look forward to that day. It sounds strange, but Lord, you have a reason for us looking forward to it, and you also have a reason for us to, to uh, see that coming day on the horizon, Lord, and be ready for your coming to, to be excited about your coming, to be uh, inspired to do something in this lost and dying world before it's too late. So, so Lord, as we look at this end times message in Second Peter today, I, I ask that uh, it does both uh, uh, for our hearts, Lord, that one, it, it uh, reminds us of just what a great day that'll be when you... Uh, in a twinkling of an eye, take us to be with you. And then what a terrible day it'll be for those who are left behind, Lord. So, so we have mixed emotions, but, but Lord, we do long for your coming, and, but we do long for the lost, this lost world to be saved, Lord. So, so teach us these lessons that you would teach us through this text. Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that in Christ's name, amen. I have some really great news for all of y'all this morning. The Lord is coming very, very soon. And he told me that in his word when I was studying this week. He's going to tell you the same thing. But it's if you read your Bible, the coming of the Lord, that event is all over the Bible. One scholar determined that in the Old Testament there are 1,800 and 45 references to the return of Christ and the establishment of his millennial kingdom. That's in the Old Testament. 17 books, and some of the books that we're going to be looking at as we go through the minor prophets are those books. 17 of the books in the Old Testament give priority to the millennial kingdom. They're about the millennial kingdom. That's the main message of the book. In the New Testament, 23 of 27 books talk about the coming of the Lord. And there are 318 references to the second coming. That is one in every 30 verse, verses. One out of every 30 verses is about the second coming of the Lord. And for every prophecy in the Bible about his first coming, every prophecy in his Bible about, in the Old Testament about his first coming, there are eight in the Bible about his second coming. You think maybe it's an important event? You better believe it's an important event. Why is the Bible so focused on this magnificent event? Because the Lord wants us, believe it or not, to be looking forward to the day of the Lord. The, the, and it could come at any moment. I mean, God wants you to be excited about his second coming. And, and he wants you to be trim your lamps and be filled with the spirit 
and be energized for service in the last days you have on this earth. That's the attitude he wants you to have. I remember when I was a little boy, we would go on long vacations at Christmas because my dad would be stationed somewhere away from all of our relatives, and we would go on these long trips. And when we got into the car, I mean, the trip would take probably 15 hours. It was at Christmas time, and we'd get into the car, and my dad would tell us in advance that, that hey, it's gonna, you're going to be a long time in the car today. So don't be bugging me about when we're going to get there. Uh, and, but we were excited. We were going to see our uncles and aunts and our cousins, and we were going to get all sorts of gifts at Christmas from them. So we were really excited. So we would get in the car, and, I mean, we would be driving, and we would drive for an hour or so, and inevitably one of us would say, are we there yet? And my dad would look at us like he wanted to kill us. And when another hour would pass, and we would say again, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And we said that until finally my dad would either pull the car over or look back at us. And I'm amazed we didn't have wrecks in those days. But he would look back at us and say, if you want a spanking, you ask me one more time, are we there yet? If you, whoever does that, they're going to get a spanking. And so as the trip wore on, the excitement wore off. And by the time we got there, none of us were excited. In fact, we were all fast asleep in the back of the car. You know, that's sort of like, or that's really the same problem that the church has. The same problem my siblings and I had. We start out really excited, but the longer the day takes to come, the longer it takes for the Lord's return, the less excited we get. And I got to tell you, for the most part, I think most of us are fast asleep. We're not even thinking about the return of the Lord. And here's the reason. We've got, our bad, we've got a bad problem with the way we think of eschatology, but the way we think of the last days. You know what we think? We think instead of getting excited because another year has passed and we're that much closer to the return of the Lord, we get to thinking, well, he's delayed so long, he's probably never going to come back. And that was the problem in Peter's day. People have become scoffers. And I mean, they were just, you know, a few decades past the ascension of the Lord back to heaven. But he did say when he ascended back, the angels said the same way in which he ascended up to heaven, he will, he will come back to this earth. And so, so they were looking forward to the day of the Lord too. They were looking forward to the coming of the Lord. But then they began to, you know, the excitement began to wane and they be, began to question, is the Lord ever going to come back? Because as, as the text says, it says, you know, things from the beginning, they, they're, they're, they're going on just as they've always gone on. I mean, the sun goes up, the sun goes down, it rains, it's sunny, there's floods, there's droughts, there's earthquakes, there's wars, there's rumors of wars. And we keep asking, are we there yet? But there's still no sign of the return of the Lord. Well, you know, Peter was actually living in the last days. Remember, we talked about the last days last week. We think of the last days sometimes as being the very few days that, that transpire right before Christ comes. But the last days begin at Pentecost, and they will end with the return of Jesus Christ. And so, so Peter was living in the last days. And, and, and every, every century that passes, we get that much closer to the time of the Lord's arrival. 
But, but uh, still, we, day, days go by, years go by, and there's no Jesus. He's nowhere to be found except in our hearts, right? Which is a wonderful thing. But Peter wants to encourage us in this text. He wanted to encourage his followers in the, in his, in, when he wrote this text. That just because a lot of time has passed doesn't mean that the Lord is not coming soon. In fact, the more time that has passed, the closer we are to the Lord's return. We are really, really, really close right now. And I'm going to talk about that in, in just a few minutes. But let's go to our text, 2 Peter chapter 3. And look what be beginning in verse number 8. And listen to what he says. He says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now, Peter was not given us some kind of exact formula here for calculating God time. He might as well said here, uh, one day is as 10,000 years and 10,000 years is one day because God lives in eternity. And what seems like a long time to us is just like this to God. And God is in no hurry. We're going to see here in a minute that God wishes that none should perish. And he's going to wait until every last one of the elect are absolutely saved before he has returned. But you know what? I have a hunch that we're real, real close to the return of the Lord. And I base that upon two things. And one, you, God's clock, when we look at God's clock, what nation do we look at? We look at the nation of Israel. And the very fact that you live in a time when that nation is back in the land is a major sign that Christ is about to return. I mean, you just think about what a miracle it was for a nation to be scattered all over the world. Nothing like this has ever happened. And then for that nation to keep all of its traditions, it, to, to, to maintain its language, then be brought back to that land as a nation and be surrounded by all of these enemies and protected by God until, until when? Until the time of Jacob's trouble. When does the time of Jacob's trouble start? When the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, when the very last Gentile, other than the tribulation saints, the very last Gentile that's going to get saved, gets saved, then God is going to turn his attention to the nation of Israel. And I believe we're very, very close to that time because that nation is back in the land and God is dealing with that nation. And if you read Ezekiel 38 and 39 and you read the book of Revelation, which we'll be heading into here in a few months, you will see that, that uh, those nations that are mentioned in those books, the book of Daniel that we looked at earlier on Wednesday night, that the nations that are mentioned there are all in alignment now, just as the Bible predicted. I mean, can you imagine Russia being an ally with Iran and Syria? Well, the Bible predicts that. And one day they're going to come against Israel. I believe that day is really soon. Now, another reason that I believe we're really close to the time of the Lord uh, or the coming of the Lord is because of the millennium. The millennium speaks loudly about the return of the Lord. What is the millennium? It's a time of rest. It's a time of rest from a very, very difficult age 
the age of mankind. It's a time when God takes charge on earth. And it's for how long? It's for a thousand years. Now, if you go back to the creation, God created the heavens of the earth in how many days? In six days. And then what did he do? He rested. And I believe that we, the earth has existed for almost 6,000 years. And then we go into that seventh year, which is the millennial rest. And if you look at probably the most recognized Jewish calendar, we're actually in the year 5782. Now that leaves us a couple of hundred years from the end, but there's all sorts of questions about the calculations of that calendar. And there are other calendars that suggest we are right at the year 6,000. In fact, our own calendar suggests that, doesn't it? That we're 2,000 years A.D., 4,000 years B.C. and it was the creation in 2,000 years A.D. We are right there. It is time to get excited. I mean, I believe the Lord is going to come back at any moment. But I got to ask the question. You know, I mean, Lord, I, I, why don't you come back today? I mean, I mean, why do you keep delaying this thing? I mean, why has God waited so long to come back to this earth and rule and reign in righteousness. Why does he let us go on doing the things we do? Well, here's the reason. Verse number nine. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some consider, count slackness. You might put it this way. The Lord is not slow as some count slowness. But is long suffering toward us. Catch that. He's long suffering toward us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's your reason right there. First of all, who's the us here? Who's the us that he's long-suffering towards in this verse? It's mankind. He's speaking of all humans. He's not, uh, God is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering su suffering towards mankind. In the book of Ezekiel, the Lord says, uh, he doesn't take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. That's why there's a delay in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not going to be a pretty thing. It's going to be a terrible thing. And so God doesn't want to, God doesn't take pleasure in destroying mankind. He doesn't take any pleasure in that. And, and, and so that's the reason we have the delay. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that Whosoever believes him should not perish. And he wishes that none should perish. And so he delays. And, and, and I guess that should be our heart too. That's what I don't like about hyper-Calvinism. This idea that somehow Christ got on a cross and died just for his elect few. And you could use an excuse my French. You could use the expression to hell with the rest of the world. I mean, that's not the heart of God. God's heart is for the lost. Our heart should be for the lost. He wishes that none should perish, that all should come to eternal life. You know, back in 1988, Chuck Smith, who is the one who we attribute to founding Calvary Chapel, back, actually back in the early 80s, he was predicting that Christ would come in 1988. And there were several people on that bandwagon. But I got to tell you something. I don't know about you. How many of you were not saved in 1988? I wasn't saved in 88. 
Now, if he'd come in 89, that would have been fine because I got saved in 89. And all of you others, I mean, that tough. You see how bad that thinking can be? I mean, when we're sitting there and we're all excited about prophecy and all, man, just, Lord, come on, kill them all and take me to heaven. That's a bad attitude. Man, I am so glad that the Lord is long-suffering. I'm so glad that he waited on me to get saved before he came back. I mean, if he'd come back in 1988, I wouldn't have been saved, or at the very least, I would have gone through the Great Tribulation, and that's where I would have gotten saved. Nobody wants to get saved during the Great Tribulation. But just because he's long-suffering doesn't mean that he's not coming soon to judge this world. Don't mistake his long-suffering for weakness. Don't mistake his long-suffering for the fact that he's just going to break his, or, or because of that, say he's going to break his promise. He's coming back. Let me tell you what, he determined before the foundation of the world when he was coming back. That date was set before the foundation of the world. Look at verse number 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Why does he use that metaphor there, a thief in the night? What, 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 if a thief comes into your home at night, what is that telling you? Were you expecting that thief? Did you invite that thief? No, he came when you least expected him to come. Now that's a a metaphor in contrast because obviously God is good and not like a thief. But when Jesus returns, he's going to come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Now let me tell you what, that will mess up your eschatology, your, your view about the last days if you don't understand all the eschatological terms in the Bible. Look at the first part of that verse. He says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. What is the day of the Lord? Is the day of the Lord the day when the heavens pass away with the great noise and the elements melt with fervent heat and, the, and both the earth and the works on the earth are burned up? Is, is that the day of the Lord? Yes, it is. It's part of the day of the Lord. But let me tell you why he comes as a thief of the night. Because the day of the Lord begins with what event? It begins with the rapture of the church. And then comes the great tribulation. And you could say that this speaks of the great tribulation. I don't think so. I think this speaks of the final judgment at the end of the millennial when God sends fire upon the earth because of man's last rebellion. When Satan is let loose and men... men uh, join Satan and rebel against God. And then at that point, the heaven and earth are, are burned up. And, and we get, it, we'll see in verse 13, we get a new heaven and a new earth. So, so when you talk about the day of the Lord, you've got to understand that it covers a long period of time. It's the day when the Lord takes over. That's the way I see it. He takes over from mankind. We no longer rule and reign over ourselves. He rules and reigns over us. And it begins with the rapture of the church and it ends with us going into eternity forever with the Lord in the new heaven and a new earth. So get your theological terms, eschatological terms straightened out. All right, verse number 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? 
In other words, since the Lord could come at any time as a thief in the night, since everything that we have is temporal, it's all going to be burned up in fire one day. The, the earth and the works of the earth, they're all going to be gone. What manner of people ought we to be? Well, he tells us, in holy conduct, in godliness. You understand what he's saying right there? We need to be serious people of faith. You, we need to quit living for the temporal and live for the eternal. We need to live in, in righteousness by the power of God. We need to get ready for the coming of the Lord. We don't need to be asleep. You know, I believe the church today, if you want a picture of the church, we are on the bed snoring. That's a picture of us. We need to wake up. Time is very, very, very short. The Lord is going to be coming really, really, really soon. And how, what should our attitude be? Look at verse number 12. Looking for, looking forward to is maybe a better translation. Looking forward to and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be dissolved. He mentions it again for the third time. Will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. And we're to look forward to it. Wow, God, I can't wait till you burn everything up. That should be our attitude. Lord, I can't wait until you dissolve the heavens and the earth and we get a new heaven and we get a new earth. When does that day take place? Look back at verse number seven. It tells us, he says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until when? The day of judgment. And I believe that's the day after the millennium at the great, great, great white throne judgment seat where everybody will be judged. And then at that point, the heavens will dissolve and the earth will be dissolved and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So we look forward to that. Sounds awful strange, Lord. We're to look forward to that. Yeah, we're to look forward to that. We're to look forward to that and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Now, hastening, hastening here is a very unfortunate translation. And, and, and it has caused a lot of problems over the years. What some people teach, and I think they teach this in era, is that somehow we can hasten the coming of the day of the of the Lord. Let me tell you what, that date has been set and it's been set by God himself. Who are we to think we can hasten the coming of the day of the Lord? Well, let me tell you where they get that because over in the Olivet Discord, it's, Discourse, it says once the gospel has been preached to all the nations, then the Lord will return. In other words, once every Gentile who is saved has been saved, then the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled and we will go into the great tribulation and then the millennium and then the day of judgment. And so they say that if we, as we teach the gospel, we're hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Now that day has already been set. Now that, that teaching of the gospel is our responsibility. It is our duty. We all want to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul said in his day, the gospel had gone out into the entire world. And every generation since that, I believe the gospel has gone out into the entire world. 
And I, and I think it's, and, and we certainly have the privilege and we certainly have the responsibility to share the gospel, but we aren't hastening the return of the Lord. And I think it's arrogance to say so we, because we don't save anyone. Listen, you have never saved anybody in your life. I hear people talk about, well, I saved 10 people. I, 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 you, you don't born again anybody. God does that. Now, God uses your mouth. You have a great privilege and a great responsibility. He does use your mouth. And, but let me tell you what, if, if you don't share the gospel and that person is going to get saved, God's going to get that person saved if the rocks have to cry out. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, a, I was, I'm a person who was saved. I heard the gospel, but I never received the gospel. And, and when I got saved, there was nobody out there but but me and the Lord in the desert. I'm not saying that's the way you should get saved. But, and, and certainly God uses, most people in this room who have been saved have been saved through somebody sharing the gospel with them. And that is our duty. But we can't hasten the day of the Lord. Let me tell you what, I can tell you all today. Y'all want to get your pencils out because you, you want to get this one. I can tell you exactly when the Lord's coming back. I'm going to give you the date. Y'all ready? Everybody got their pencils and pens ready. He's going to come back. Well, I can't even tell you that. I can tell you when he's going to come get the church. You want to know that date? I'm not going to tell you. No, it doesn't look, it doesn't look like y'all really want to know it. Do you really want to know it? All right, I'm going to give it to you. When the last Gentile who's going to get saved gets saved, then he's coming back. That's the date. You might have the privilege to save the last Gentile that's going to get saved. And you'll usher in the great tribulation. Think about the responsibility of that. That's terrible. <laughs> you know, when Jesus was speaking in the Olivet Discourse and he said, once the gospel is preached, then the Lord's going to return. I believe he was speaking of the time during the great tribulation when there's, the earth is given this one last chance to repent. Do you remember what happens? The gospel is preached by an angel in the air. I don't know if he's in a jet and he's got smoke spelling the gospel out or, or how he does it. But somehow he's going to be in the air and everybody's going to hear the gospel. And everybody's going to get saved. No. You know what everybody's going to do? May the rocks fall on us. We will not have this man rule over us. As bad as it is. Here's the good news. You can get saved and you can get out of this mess. But you know what people are going to do? They're so set in their rebellion that those people that are going through the great tribulation, the vast, vast, vast majority of them are going to throw their hands up at God and, or their fist up at God and say, I will not have you rule over me. I'd rather the rocks follow me than for you to rule over me. So, look, we, it, it, it's part of our nature. It's part of our nature to long for the coming of the, of the Lord. If you're a born-again believer, you long for the coming. You can't hasten that day. Actually, the, the Greek word there, I skipped that. Let me go back a second. The Greek word there for hasten is, is speedo. Speedo. What, guess what English word we get from that? Speed. In other words, what he's saying right there, Peter is saying is that we're looking forward to the speedy coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in other words, we want him to come as soon as possible because that's our nature. 
If, if you're a born-again believer, it's your nature to long for the return of the Lord. If you don't long for the return of the Lord, I got news for you, you're not saved. Because listen to what Paul says over in 2 Timothy 4.8. He says, finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but watch this, but all those who long for his appearing. That tells me if you don't long for his appearing, you don't get the crown of righteousness. He said this over in Philippians chapter 3. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we eagerly wait for the speedy return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is part of our nature. Why? Why do you eagerly wait for his return, because like Noah, our heart is vexed, our soul is vexed day and night with all the evil of this world. Let me tell you what, if you love this world and the things of this world, what does John say? The love of God is not in you. And the more I see things spinning out of control on this earth, the more and more I long for the coming of the Lord and his righteousness, for his rule. But, just as it's part of our nature to long for the coming of the Lord, if you're born again, it's part of your nature to wish that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. So as much as we want him to come, we don't want him to come any sooner than when everyone who's going to get saved gets saved. And if you're one of those who just sits around longing for the day of the Lord and and without any regard for the fate of the wicked, which you all of us were before we were saved, then there is something wrong. Amos said this to the Israelites way back hundreds of years before Christ even came. Listen to what he said. He says in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. You got that? Now Peter's saying, we look forward to the day of the Lord. Amos says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It is a day of darkness, not a day of light. In other words, what he was saying, back in those days in Israel, there was a group of people who were a bunch of prophecy nuts, and they sat around and they started looking at all these prophecies. They missed a bunch of them, but they said, Man, the Messiah is coming soon. And the millennial kingdom is going to be set up really, really soon. And they started looking for the day of the Lord. And the heck with the rest of Israel. I mean, the heck with, with all the wickedness and everything that's going on. We're not going to do anything about that. We're just going to uh, set ourselves apart from these people, go up in a mountain high and wait for the coming of the Lord. And Amos says to those people, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Because your heart's not right with God. If you're desiring your nation to be destroyed, your heart is not right with God. Because there's a lot of lost people in your nation and you very well might not be saved in this day of light that you think is coming is really for you going to be a day of darkness. And I believe there are a lot of people in, in, in our day that are the same way. Let me tell you what, the day of the Lord is not some party to look forward to. It's a terrible day. It's the most terrible thing to ever happen on this earth. Go with me over to Isaiah. You want some really encouraging words? Go over with me to Isaiah. 
chapter 13. Way back in the major prophets, as they call them, back in Isaiah, a little bit past Psalms. Look in Isaiah 13, and I want to read to you about the day of the Lord from God's perspective. Look at verse number 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And he will destroy its sinners from it, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil, the entire world, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud. I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal, a human being, more rare than fine gold. A man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. That is a, the, most, the, the, most, the rarest of gems. For you to be able to find a man after the day of the Lord, you're going to have to look really, really, really hard. You know, when I was talking about us going into the book of Revelation, I, I can always tell when you talk about going into the book of Revelation, everybody gets excited. Because everybody wants to know who the Antichrist is, and I know y'all think I've got it figured out, but I don't. That who the Antichrist is, when the Lord's going to return, I mean, how close are we? We don't know all those things. And everybody gets all excited about the book of Revelation until we get to chapter 6. And then the day of the Lord begins. And from 6 to chapter 19, you see these terrible judgments on this earth and you look at the terrible time that's going to take place here, and you are absolutely shocked, and you don't want to hear it anymore. I mean, we'll have a big crowd when we get started in Revelation. By the time we get to chapter 19, there'll be just a few of us left here. If people start emptying out, when you look at all of these terrible things that take place on the earth, it's not a pretty time. It's, it's not a good time. And And... If we can long for the end of the world and the destruction of the wicked without any concern for their souls, then there might very well be something wrong with us. And that day of light that we're looking for might very well be a day of darkness for us. Fifteen years ago, you remember? those planes going into those towers. When I first saw the first plane go into the tower, I or saw the film of the first plane going into the tower before the second one went in. Katie Kirk was saying they've got a problem at, with the air controllers or something. I mean, I was like, come on, where'd you get that? That's a terrorist attack. But you know, at first, I got to tell you, I'm going to be honest with you. I got my adrenaline started flowing. Because I started looking at that and I said, man, this is apocalyptic. This is like the end of the world. This is, and I got excited. The Lord could come back at any time. But then, you know what I started seeing? I started seeing people jumping off the buildings from the very top. It was either burn to death or jump off the building. It wasn't so exciting then. 
And I saw another plane come to the tower, and I realized that there were hundreds of people of that plane. And then you saw those towers fall, and thousands of people in those towers died that day. And hundreds died at the Pentagon. And that wasn't a pretty sight anymore. I wasn't excited about it anymore. I was sick to my stomach. Because most of those people who died that day were not saved. There were some that were saved. There were some great stories told about that. Don't get me wrong, but most of them were not saved. Their fate was sealed that day. And when the great tribulation comes, 9-11 is nothing compared to the great tribulation. Multiply that times thousands times ten thousands. Two-thirds of the population of this earth will be destroyed. And if you can look forward to that day without any remorse, without any, without any sorrow for the wicked, if we can long for Christ to just come back and get us out of here and just blow them all up, there is something wrong with us. And I see these prophecy people, that, that's their attitude, and I don't like that attitude. We should hurt for the lost. We have relatives that are lost. We have children that are lost. We have grandchildren that are lost. We live in a city of lost people. And we should care for those people. And our longing for the coming of the Lord should be tempered by our love for other people if we're truly born again. But now Peter's going to mess my whole sermon up. Go back to 2 Peter. He says, nevertheless, 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 we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Nevertheless, even though this world is going to go through a tribulation like it's never seen and death and sorrow like it's never seen, nevertheless, we look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Even though we've got a heart for the lost, we long for the coming of the Lord because most of this world is so terribly wicked. We look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Now let me tell you about a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth, that word new there doesn't mean something like uh, the, the difference between a car and a motorcycle. It's not something like that. It's made new. This old ragged earth that really wasn't that ragged until we got a hold of it. But this old ragged earth that'll go through the great tribulation and all the terrors of sin. Uh, and one of the things you, in Revelation, Revelation you read is woe to those who destroy the earth. It's not going to be destroyed again, but it's going to be made new. The heavens are going to be rolled up and they're going to be made new. But it'd be a lot like what we see today. It's gonna, but man, it's gonna be so beautiful. I mean, go to the Grand Canyon. Get rid of all the tourists. Go to the Grand Canyon and look out over that. It will take your breath away. Then you look up into the sky out there, and you can actually, even with bad eyes, you can actually see the stars. You can reach up and you can grab them and bring them down. We're going to live in a day where there's not going to be any great big, a pop, great big population. You're going to be there. 
And it's going to be so beautiful. It's going to all be made new. It's going to all be made perfect. And, and, and it's going to be so wonderful. And the most wonderful thing about it won't be the ascetics. The most wonderful thing about it, look at the last part of that verse is, in verse number 13, we look forward to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Oh, man. That's something else. If you're a born-again believer, you long for. You long for righteousness. Man, I, never, I didn't give a flip about righteousness before 1989 when I got saved, but since then, the, the older I get, the more and more I long for righteousness. Justice. For people to do the right thing. For people to love one another. For people to treat one another the way they should treat one another. Vance Hebner used to had a really eloquent way of describing that day. He said, in that day, people will ask, where are the wicked? Gone. Where is Satan? Gone. Where are the demons that taunted us day and night when we were on before the millennium, where are they? Gone. Where is injustice? Gone. Where is hate? Gone. Where is sickness and death? Gone. Where is, I mean, where is sickness and disease? Gone. Where is death? Gone. And what will be left will be a place that is no longer cursed by God, but blessed by God in every possible way. A place of perfect people living in perfect righteousness in a relationship with their perfect God. You know, I got one question. Are we there yet? <laughs> no. But we're awfully, awfully close. So don't go lay down and fall asleep spiritually because the Lord is delayed. You need to wake up. We need to wake up and we need to be about his business until he comes because he's coming very, very soon. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, for the hope of your return to this earth to rule and reign on a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever in perfect righteousness. Lord, until that day comes, Lord, we, we want to be longing for that day, but we also want to be hurting for those who are lost. Lord, when we really believe in your coming, it shouldn't inspire us to, to hide away somewhere. It should inspire us to want to serve you and reach as many possible people as we possibly can before you do come back. Lord, but we do long for that day. We all cry out, Maranatha, Lord Jesus. Even so, come quickly. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Now stand and close the song.